The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction series on cosmology. In this episode we'll be talking about Einstein's mistake. Or was it? Last episode we described how Einstein applied his theory of general relativity to the fabric of space-time in the universe as a whole, and how this in turn led to the development of a whole new field, a theoretical approach to cosmology, and a theoretical approach to understanding the history, and the far future, of the universe as a whole. We discussed how Einstein's new theory of gravity allowed him to derive equations which would determine how space-time itself should behave under a range of different circumstances, which would ultimately allow for mathematical trajectories for the entire universe to be derived. And we talked about how Einstein introduced a cosmological constant into his equations, so that the universe that these equations described would better match up with his belief that the universe should be static and unchanging in time. We discussed how other scientists, like Willem de Sitter, started to work on other solutions to Einstein's equations, which could, it turned out, give rise to totally different universes, such as, for example, a void universe that was devoid of all matter. And all of this provided a theoretical framework for understanding the observations of Hubble and others, which could be explained by a universe that was expanding. But at the time, when all of this was first being developed, there was still a great deal of controversy about how to interpret the observations. Now, one of the things that might start to occur to you when we talk about all of these solutions to the cosmological equations, you know, these mathematical structures that these scientists are deriving, is to wonder whether these solutions necessarily actually have to have any meaning at all. This is a constant concern of theoretical physicists. So, in theoretical physics, you might have some equations that you believe describe the universe in some way, whether they describe the laws of electromagnetism, or how particles can exist and behave, or how the fabric of space-time itself might exist. Now, we know from our observations that these equations can describe a lot of different behaviours in the universe, in the real universe, to some physical degree of accuracy. Now, of course, it's easy for us to go about answering the mathematical question, well, how do you solve these equations, and what are all of the solutions? That's a perfectly well-defined mathematical question, and depending on the equations, there'll be plenty of different solutions you can come up with. But the question of how you interpret these solutions is a different and often a more subtle one. Let's consider a really basic example here, Newton's laws. Newton's second law, force equals mass times acceleration, as you doubtless learned in school, or through our series on Newton if you're locked in a bunker somewhere and the only access you have to any source of information is this podcast. If so, please do try and reach out through the contact form and I'll attempt to save you from your prison. But anyway, Newton's second law. Well... A physicist looks at this and says this is a second-order differential equation in position. 
Differentiating something mathematically just means finding the rate at which it changes. Velocity is the rate of change of position. Acceleration is the rate of change of velocity. So if we differentiate position twice, we get to acceleration. Newton's law tells us how acceleration works. It depends on the forces that are acting on objects. And so really, it's a second-order differential equation, which we can solve mathematically, and we understand that. If you set the force equal to zero, then you see that the acceleration is zero. And then we can integrate up that equation, and we'll end up with a couple of different solutions. We could have a constant velocity object, or we could have an object with no velocity when there's no force. So actually, you see that integrating up the differential equation that is Newton's second law gives you Newton's first law, that an object, if no force acts on it, will carry on going at the same speed, or will have no speed at all if it's at rest. If you set the force equal to a constant times the mass of the object, like gravity, then you will get all of these freefall solutions. If you say that the initial conditions which apply to the object is that it's travelling in one direction, then you get projectile motion, a parabola-like solution for an object that you launch out falling under the influence of gravity while maintaining its velocity in that one direction you launched it with. Now, we know that all of these things exist in the real world. We can see solutions to Newton's equations around us. So when we come up with these mathematical solutions and we say, oh, okay, we can see that there's a positive velocity object over here or an object moving like a parabola over here because we know that there are forces like gravity that are proportional to the mass. And we can see this in the real world. We, we understand that the solutions to Newton's equations correspond to real things. But what if you let the mass go negative? in Newton's second law. F equals ma, but m is negative. Then we have a strange situation. Our negative mass object would accelerate in the opposite direction to where you're pushing it. This would indeed be disturbing. Now, this is a valid mathematical solution to the equation that is Newton's second law. There's no reason mathematically that we couldn't have this. But does this necessarily mean that negative mass objects actually exist in the real world? Well, in fact, we know there's something called antimatter, which annihilates ordinary matter when they come into contact with each other. But under gravity and other forces, antimatter has positive mass. It doesn't have anti-mass. It gravitates like ordinary matter. And if you push on it in one direction, it'll go in that direction. It just happens to annihilate when it comes into contact with ordinary matter. So Newton's equations of motion may permit negative mass. You can solve them as if you had negative mass and imagine objects that fly upward from the ground and are repelled by gravity rather than attracted by it, or when you push on them, accelerate towards your hand. But we strongly suspect, based on other laws of physics, that this negative mass doesn't exist. Returning then to the topic we're covering, which is cosmology, we have cosmological equations that actually describe the types of space-time that can exist. So the question now arises again. How do you interpret the solutions to these equations? Just because a mathematical solution to the equations exists, does it mean that universes like this necessarily have to exist as well? If they don't, then how can we tell the difference between what's a mathematical artefact from our description of the universe, or the actual universe itself? Or could they just be strange mathematical artefacts that arise from our theory that we don't really need to worry about, like this idea of a negative mass? Does it have to mean anything philosophically that the equations that govern our universe and its structure could just as easily have produced nothing at all? When Einstein is adding on his cosmological constant to explain the static universe as he wanted to do, 
you know, how do you interpret the meaning of this term? It might appear to be a mathematical term, but if it's going to be a thing that exists, it will have to correspond to some physical force, some physical mechanism that is unknown to us now. These are the questions you can't answer just by leaning on pure mathematics. These questions require some physical intuition about how the universe behaves or should be, or else some observations that can rule out certain types of behaviour, such as never seeing a negative mass, to answer. And of course, some of them do tip over from science into the realm of philosophical speculation entirely. Last episode, we discussed how Einstein had to introduce this cosmological constant into his equations. And he could do it because his equations were invariant. They let him introduce a certain type of term. But to allow the equations to continue to hold and to give rise to a static universe... Einstein needed to have a cosmological constant that was proportional to the volume of the universe. For a static universe, then, you have to have this constant actually completely counteract the attractive force of gravity that's pulling the universe in on itself. And that way you can have an eternal universe that doesn't expand or contract. So how could we interpret this? Well, the most direct interpretation, when you have this constant that's proportional to the whole volume of the universe is that there's some kind of energy field which occupies all of space in the universe. It's an energy that tends to make the universe, that tends to make space-time, expand over time. And this dark energy, if you like, for a static universe like the one that Einstein believed in, is just precisely the correct density to cancel out the gravitational pull of all the matter in the universe. But beyond this, we can't really say. If you add in this cosmological constant, it becomes a very mysterious thing. The equations don't tell us where this energy comes from, how it operates, whether it influences anything else. We simply don't know, but if you want to have a static universe, you have to have it somewhere. In the last episode, we talked about how a young scientist, Willem de Sitter, had found a solution to Einstein's equations that Einstein himself found disturbing. This solution was that of a vacuum universe, with no matter in it at all. It would be completely empty of all matter, and hence there would be nothing in it that was attracting the universe in with the force of gravity. Yet, because of the cosmological constant, it would still be expanding. You can see why Einstein thought that this was all getting a bit out of hand. His theory of gravity was supposed to explain how matter distorted and bent space and time. Yet, solutions existed that had no matter in them whatsoever. His theory of gravity did a great job at explaining aspects of gravitation that Newton's laws didn't so he had a good sense that it could indeed correspond to the real world. But just because you have this better theory of gravity, de Sitter wants to interpret this now as there being a possible alternative universe, filled with nothing, that just expands forever. I mean, such a thing almost seems like it should be a mathematical artefact, especially to someone like Einstein who had this philosophical predilection that the universe should make sense. Did this actually have meaning as an alternative form for a universe to take, or was it just an artefact of the equations, that they could happen to have this mathematical solution that didn't really have any physical meaning at all? So there was some considerable debate about whether these universes could actually exist, or whether they were just extra solutions to the equations that didn't mean much. But one irony that does strike me here is that actually, when it came to Einstein's theory of general relativity, his theory of gravitation, and his field equations for general relativity more generally, the question of whether mathematical solutions would have to exist in reality was already being discussed. Karl Schwarzschild, working in the trenches of World War I, 
had worked out one of the first solutions to Einstein's field equations. And they gave rise to a single point of infinite density, a singularity. And he described how space-time might behave around something that dense. He wrote to Einstein with his solution at the time. He said, quote, As you see, the war treated me kindly enough, in spite of the heavy gunfire, to allow me to get away from it all and take this walk in the land of your ideas. End quote. When Schwarzschild published this in 1916, these were the first mathematical solutions to Einstein's field equations, which had only first been published before, in 1915, the year before. It wasn't clear to anyone whether this mathematical solution actually represented something that existed in real reality. Yet, when the observations of black holes were finally made, they confirmed that this mathematical solution really did correspond to something that existed in reality. This solution did correspond to how a black hole would behave, an object that got dense enough to bend light back in on itself. Schwarzschild sadly did not live to see his theoretical calculations confirmed as real objects that existed in the universe. He died in 1916, after a remarkable career in physics and astronomy on the Russian front. The radius at which a gravitating object becomes a black hole is known as the Schwarzschild radius in his memory. This is, of course, obviously all very philosophically interesting. You might argue that it's just a matter of the order in which certain things are discovered. I mean, Schwarzschild figures out that Einstein's theory includes black holes, and then black holes are observed. It could have happened the other way, that black holes were observed, and then Einstein's theory was the thing that came along and explained their existence. But the real point here is more fundamental than that. It's a question of whether we're observing things and then coming up with mathematical structures and ideas that allow us to explain them, categorise them and predict them in a sort of consistent and logical way. Or whether, as we make our observations and develop our theories, we're undercovering the fundamental logic by which the universe is governed. Whether the mathematical structures that we can theorise about and develop on blackboards and in notebooks necessarily correspond to the laws that explain how the universe itself works, or whether it's possible to build frameworks that don't correspond to anything. After all, prior to Einstein, this non-Euclidean geometry, the geometry of curved spaces, was a fairly obscure mathematical area. It was something that mathematicians had developed many, many years before. But when they did so, in this niche, they had no idea that their mathematical structures would correspond to the physical universe. Nor did anyone know that the elegant solution to Einstein's equations that resulted in black holes was actually predicting real objects that existed in the universe. Yet all of this does seem to be confirmation that, whatever our universe really is, it is governed by the laws of mathematics, even if they are as yet too complicated for us to understand them all. And this gives rise to perhaps the fantasy or the dream of the theoretical physicist that one day they will write down the equation. And from the equation, all else, every observable phenomena, everything that exists, flows from this single law of mathematics. Of course, it might take you a few pages to write it down. Anyway, so having discussed whether our mathematical structures really reflect the actual universe or not, let's talk about the specific solutions to Einstein's equations and the debate that was arising in the 1920s. In 1922, the young Russian physicist Alexander Friedman suggested that non-static solutions of the Einstein field equation should be considered in models of the universe. Starting from the modified Einstein field equations, Friedman derived two differential equations linking the time evolution of the universe with the density of matter and the cosmological constant. 
These equations, which are sometimes called the Friedman-Robertson-Lemaitre-Walker equations, because four people came up with parts of them more or less independently. Einstein did not welcome Friedman's contribution. His first reaction was that the Russian must have made a mathematical error. While this criticism was eventually retracted, an unpublished draft of Einstein's retraction shows that he considered Friedman's cosmology unrealistic. To tell you a little bit more about what Friedman had discovered, I'm now going to quote from one of my favourite books on cosmology, one of the books that actually inspired me to go into physics in the first place, which is The First Three Minutes by Steven Weinberg. It was first published in the 1970s, so it's not the most up-to-date of works, but in terms of the historical physics, which hasn't changed that much since the 1920s, it's obviously still great, so please do give it a read if you get the chance. He says, quote, The Friedman models are of two very different types. If the average density of matter in the universe is less than, or equal to, a certain critical value, then the universe must be spatially infinite. In this case, the present expansion of the universe will go on forever. On the other hand, if the density of the universe is greater than this critical value, if there's too much stuff in the universe, then the gravitational field produced by the matter curves the universe back on itself. It is finite, though unbounded, like the surface of a sphere. That is, if we set off on a journey in a straight line, we do not reach any sort of edge of the universe, but simply come back to where we began, as we would if we were walking along the surface of a sphere. In this case, the gravitational fields are strong enough to eventually stop the expansion of the universe, so that it will eventually implode back to indefinitely large density. The critical density is proportional to the square of the Hubble constant, for the presently popular value of 15 kilometers per second per million light years for the Hubble constant, the critical density equals 5 times 10 to the minus 27 kilograms per cubic centimeter, or about 3 hydrogen atoms per thousand liters cubic meter of space. The motion of any typical galaxy in the Friedman models is precisely like that of a stone thrown upwards from the surface of the Earth. If the stone is thrown fast enough, or what amounts to the same thing, if the mass of the Earth is small enough, then the stone will gradually slow down, but will nevertheless escape to infinity. This corresponds to the case of a cosmic density less than the critical density. On the other hand, if the stone is thrown with insufficient speed, or if the Earth's gravity is strong enough, then it will rise to a maximum height, and then plunge back downward to Earth. This, of course, corresponds to a cosmic density above the critical density. This analogy makes clear why it was not possible to find static cosmological solutions of Einstein's equations. We might not be too surprised to see a stone rising or falling from the surface of the Earth, but we would hardly expect to find one hanging perfectly in midair. The analogy also helps us to avoid a common misconception about the expanding universe. The galaxies are not rushing apart because of some mysterious force that is pushing them apart, just as the rising stone in our analogy is not being repelled by the Earth. Rather, the galaxies are moving apart because they were thrown apart by some sort of explosion in the past. End quote. It was this discovery that the first solutions to his equations implied in the Friedman models would not allow for a static and stable universe, and instead implied an unstable universe that must be expanding or contracting, that led Einstein to originally come up with the fudge factor that he would regard later as his greatest mistake the cosmological constant which counteracted gravity and allowed a static universe to exist.
So already within the mathematics of these equations, we have the notions of a beginning of a universe and its end as well. We see that we're in the midst of some process that does have a definite beginning, that we're witnessing the universe evolve over time as it expands. And this implies that the beginning was much hotter and denser than conditions are today. And we also have this notion of a critical density. If there's too much matter in the universe, the gravitational influence on this expansion will eventually reverse it. And we might expect the universe to contract again and finish in a big crunch. This could even give rise to the idea of some potentially cyclical cosmology. Perhaps the universe crashes down back to a point and then expands again. Of course, if the universe is less dense than this critical density, the universe's expansion can continue endlessly. And this, of course, leads to its own version of the fate of the universe, our heat-death picture of the universe, which expands endlessly, with all energy eventually turning into heat energy that dissipates into the infinite wastes of the universe at large, the entropy of our universe happy to maximise itself over time, so that all that's left is this cold soup. There is a final version of the universe that can mathematically exist in Friedman's model. If the density of the universe is exactly equivalent to the critical density in his equations, then we have what you might call an asymptotically expanding universe. In other words, the universe continues to expand forever, but at a rate which slows down over time. It will be perpetually expanding, but eventually at a rate that is so slow, it does end up having a finite size. For the mathematically minded amongst you, imagine a graph approaching an asymptote, like 1 over x or something. It's technically always increasing, but you eventually approach an asymptote to a finite size and it gets arbitrarily close to that size. The point of Friedman's discovery of this whole family of theoretical models for the universe, it, it came out of cosmology, but it was quite profound. Now, part of the goal of observational cosmology would be to try and measure these parameters, like the critical density, or the rate of expansion of the universe, Hubble's constant, to determine which of the pictures that emerge from general relativity was most accurate. Our ability to measure these parameters, how fast the universe was expanding, how much matter there was in it, this now appears to be intimately linked to the fundamental question of how and when the universe began, and how and when it would end. Sadly, despite his prescience, including publishing a book in 1923 with a pretty decent estimate for the age of the universe, Friedman's ideas were not really acknowledged during the rest of his short lifetime. Had he lived and published more, it may well be that his contribution would be better remembered. But he died in 1925 at the age of just 37 with misdiagnosed typhoid fever. Supposedly, he caught the disease after eating an unwashed pear from a train station in Crimea. And that's how one of the first cosmologists to realise that the universe had a beginning met his end. Life can be pretty absurd sometimes. In 1927, the Belgian physicist Georges Lemaitre, who was another one of those in that massive, unwieldy name, the Friedman-Robertson-Lemaitre-Walker equations, he also derived time-varying equations for the size of the universe from the modified field equations. He was aware of the astronomical observations that people like Hubble were making, that the spiral nebulae were receding, and he was also aware of the emerging evidence in the great debate that we talked about in a previous episode, that these nebulae were actually distinct galaxies that were a long way away from the Milky Way. Lemaitre linked the new astronomical observations with general relativity by suggesting that this data really did suggest that the universe was not static but expanding. Apparently, Einstein did not receive this work favourably initially either. In his memoirs, Lemaitre recalled that Einstein described his model of an expanding universe as abominable. 
What cosmologists like Lemaitre were realising was that it was permissible in the equations to have a single dimensionless scale factor, which can change over time in your equations for space. In other words, you can, without violating the cosmological principle, have a universe where this scale is changing over time. Imagine a totally flat universe which is expanding in all directions. This doesn't violate the cosmological principle. The universe will always remain homogeneous, it will look the same wherever you go, and isotropic, it will look the same in every direction, because every distance in every direction is expanding at the same rate. Everywhere you look, you'll see the objects on the surface rushing away from you, and everywhere you look, the surface will still be flat. So it's allowable for the fabric of space-time to change in this way, providing you have the scale factor that is changing. Mathematically speaking, then, we end up with this scale factor, a, which can be a function of time, a of t, in our equations. Then, what Einstein's general relativity equations, the field equations, become, is a differential equation in a of t. And really, it's these differential equations in A that tell you how the universe itself is evolving and changing. Now, of course, the rate of change of A, the rate of change of this scale factor, is simply the Hubble constant. It is, you know, it is the Hubble constant in the sense that the rate at which the universe is expanding is the rate of change of A. So we now have this idea of how this one variable that determines how the universe is evolving over time. And these equations, these Friedman, Robertson, Lemaitre, Walker equations, which determine how A can behave. This tells us how the scale factor, the size of the universe, the distances between objects in it, and so on, are evolving over time. Now it turns out that these equations depend on a few things directly from the Einstein field equations. They depend on the initial curvature of the universe. Is the universe flat, or is it shaped like a sphere or a saddle? So this again is the question of how space and time is, is shaped, whether it curves back in on itself, whether it has a negative curvature like a saddle, or whether it's flat. It depends on the stuff in the universe itself, and the pressure and density of that stuff. In other words, you can sort of imagine the universe as being filled with a fluid that has some mass and some response to being stretched and pulled around the place. For example, if the universe is filled with matter, we know that matter has a certain response to its expansion, that it has a certain force of gravity that will influence A. And so what's within the universe ex explains and contains how the universe can expand and contract over time. Remember the De Sitter universe, that's a universe without any stuff in it, and we know how that evolves under the cosmological constant. When we go through the mathematics of this, we end up with two equations that relate A of t to the pressure and density of stuff in the universe alongside the universe's overall curvature. Solving these equations, for example, with a universe that's filled with matter, or a universe that's filled with radiation, which each have their own pressure-density relations, this can tell us how the overall scale of the universe evolves over time. These are the de Sitter solutions to Einstein's equations, and sometimes universes that can be described in this way get called de Sitter universes. We'll come on to this a little bit more later, but when we come to cover the actual history of our universe, but one key point to understand is that at least approximately speaking, when we're imagining how a universe would evolve under these equations, we can imagine our universe as going through several different phases. At one time, it's dominated by radiation. At another time, it's dominated by matter. In these different phases, you can approximately imagine that the scale factor, and hence the universe as a whole, is behaving as if the main important influence was from each of these fluids. Mathematically speaking, this is just saying that for certain values of a, you can neglect a term in the equation because it will be much, much smaller than another term. 
And we do this sort of thing all the time in physics to calculate approximate behaviours, like ignoring friction or air resistance when they're small. So, I mean, one example might be, again, to, to think back to that stone falling through the sky. When the stone has a very, very small velocity, the force of air resistance on it is not going to be that important. And we can actually ignore it to calculate how the stone is going to start falling with that small velocity. As it gets faster, though, you might expect air resistance to start to counteract gravity a bit more and become more important when you're looking at the evolving speed of the stone. And the universe actually behaves in a similar way. So for more detail about how this works mathematically and the types of universes you can get from it, as well as how it relates to our understanding of cosmology, I think I'm just going to have to refer you to the YouTube video where we might get into some proper diehard maths for the purists and draw some graphs and so on so that you can see what's going on mathematically with this uh, simple model for the universe. Now that we've introduced A of t and the equations that explain it, you can see that the Hubble constant is the rate of change of A, and sometimes we normalise it by dividing by A. But in other words, it's just telling us how quickly this scale factor of the universe is expanding. So we can get a little bit carried away in the narrative here, uh, when we're talking about the history of how theoretical cosmology developed, the arguments between the scientists and so on, and we can also get a little bit tied up in the mathematics of how these equations work which is why I want to take a step back and just reflect on some of the implications of what we're dealing with here. Scientists are debating about which set of solutions to these equations might best represent our universe and fit our observations. But when they're having this debate, oh, I prefer the static solutions to these equations, well, no, I think they should vary in time, the consequences of your preferred set of solutions are very fundamental and profound. They answer questions like, did the universe have a beginning? Does it have an end? Will it exist for all eternity? How will it end? What must it be made of? And you can see that things that were once entirely within the realm of philosophers and religions, what is the universe composed of? Where does it end? Did it have a beginning? How did it begin? How will it change in the future? When will the end times come? These are now, in a sense, within the realm of this small set of equations. Two simple differential equations that I can write on a blackboard and we can all solve as our undergrad physics classes, and they contain this insight into where it all began and where it will all end. This is the basic mathematical framework for physical cosmology that was evolving in the 1920s, around the same time that Hubble was making his observations that would add credence to the idea that the universe was expanding. And you can see that in the world of the theorists at least, this was dropping a bit of a bombshell because they're already debating about which of these solutions is true, and now Hubble's observations are suggesting different things about the nature of the universe we live in. And it's precisely this mathematical framework for the universe that Hubble's observations slotted so neatly into. So we can see the interplay between the theoretical understanding of our universe and the observational understanding, and how that's actually leading to a new picture of the universe. Hubble himself may have been reluctant to interpret the redshift relation as evidence of an expanding universe, but to a lot of theoretical cosmologists it was evidence that, however the universe was constituted, it must be in such a way to allow the Hubble constant to take on this particular value and the observation of the expanding scale factor. This was the same thing that Hubble was observing when he was lining up all of his galaxies and looking at the redshifts and looking at the distances between them. He was actually seeing the scale factor expansion that was predicted by the non-static solutions to Einstein's field equations. From that measurement then, from the line on Hubble's graph, they could start inferring how the universe at large might behave 
what kind of substances it might be full of, and so on. When Hubble published his results, uh, showing that these distant galaxies were receding at rates proportional to their distance, Einstein and many others would eventually accept that this was pretty good evidence that the universe was expanding. This is for exactly the reason we've discussed many times now. If empty space is expanding at a certain rate, then the distances between all of the objects in that space will also expand. The further away, the more space there is between you and me, the faster we'll be rushing away from each other. Hence Hubble's law, and far-off galaxies receding at speeds proportional to their distance. Of course, this isn't just true of galaxies, it's true of all objects. True of you listening to the show, and me wherever I am right now. My listeners in the UK are rushing away at a slightly slower velocity than my listeners in Australia. But you're all leaving me, propelled onwards by the expansion of space, just as I, with my feeble force of gravity, bend space and time to try and bring you closer together. Luckily for me, the effect of that expanding space is so small that it really matters only over cosmological distances. Of course, this does also mean that the universe is very, very slowly tearing you apart. You don't just feel like that. It's doing so at a rate of around 3 million trillionths of a metre per second from your head to your toes. Over the course of a long human life, by the way, this distance would be stretched by approximately 700 nanometers, which is about the wavelength of visible light. Sadly, this is not quickly enough to feel any ill effects from the process, so anything you still can't deal with is therefore your own problem. All this aside, Hubble's law was a pretty great observational proof of an expanding universe. Einstein, who was willing to change his mind when the facts changed, also abandoned his earlier ideas that the universe was static now that the observational evidence contradicted it. I don't want to belabor this point too much, because when it comes to the whole idea of the cosmological constant and the static universe, there's a lot of Einstein got it right, Einstein got it wrong, specifically surrounding this issue. I don't really like the relentless focus on right and wrong, particularly when it comes to areas of science we're learning more about, because it ignores the role of uncertainty. There was a great deal of uncertainty about the nature of the universe. Einstein had his beliefs and found solutions to his equations that backed them up. Others differed, and it turned out observations demonstrated that they were correct. Einstein, upon seeing Hubble's evidence and the explanations for it that others could provide, changed his mind. He was intellectually honest, and in my book that's often a lot more important than simply being right or wrong. Certainly for a scientist or anyone else who wants to say that they're using rationality to interpret the world. He was later widely quoted as saying that introducing the cosmological constant to get back to his solution of a static universe was his greatest blunder. Although the cosmological constant itself is not dead, and we'll return to that later on. One thing that you might be thinking about as I describe this, and I know that I did, is why was physicists and scientists so convinced that the universe should be static? After all, we've seen both Newton and Einstein being presented with evidence or ideas that their theories of gravity imply a universe that's expanding or contracting, or at any rate changing in time. Then they both have to come up with what might be some pretty significant modifications to the theory so that they can preserve the static universe. Newton had to argue that all of the stars must be roughly evenly spaced. Einstein had to add a whole cosmological constant. Why did they want to modify their theories rather than just accept the idea of a non-static universe? In this, I think we do need to remember that we are living now with some scientific hindsight. It's always so obvious when we know what the truth is. And in this case, since school, we've been taught that we live in an expanding universe. 
even though we might not think all that much about the consequences of that. In terms of understanding the history of developments in science, though, you have to put yourself back in the mindset before we knew what we know now, and that can be hard to do. Back then, there was no observational evidence that the universe was really changing over time. Looking at the distant stars, they appeared fixed and unchanging. As we discussed, the interpretation of redshifts, which were just being discovered as objects moving away, was so controversial that Hubble himself didn't really believe in it. If you're developing a theory to try and explain your observations of the universe, and your theory doesn't explain the observations as they exist today, it makes more sense to try to modify or add to the theory. On top of this, the idea of a static, steady universe is much simpler. A dynamic, changing universe is more complicated to explain, because then you have these awkward questions about a beginning for a universe and the end, why it's expanding, what makes it expand, and so on. Occam's razor, the idea that the simplest explanation is probably correct, probably does favour a static universe, particularly when you have no observational evidence to suggest otherwise. And in that case, you'd be quite biased towards the idea that the universe must indeed be static, and therefore if your equations imply something different, then you're going to assume that the equations must be wrong or incomplete in some way. So in this context, we can forgive Einstein and Newton for their mistakes. They were right about a lot of other stuff. However, once the observations come in and once the observational evidence comes in, then Einstein had to change his mind. Once you accepted that the universe could expand, you have a few more solutions to these cosmological equations. For example, in the early 1930s, Einstein published two distinct models of the expanding universe, one with closed spatial curvature and one of Euclidean or flat geometry. So you'll notice now that we don't assume the universe is static anymore, suddenly we can have solutions with different kinds of curvature. In Einstein's original solution, to make sure that that universe was definitely going to be static, we had to have a particular kind of curvature and a particular cosmological constant as well. But now that we know it's expanding, we're open to lots of different models of the universe, which are going to depend on how quickly it's expanding and other things that we can observe. In each case, with these two new models of the universe, Einstein abandoned the cosmological constant, stating that the term was both unsatisfactory, it gave an unstable solution in the static models, and unnecessary, because relativity could describe the expanding universe without it. In 1931, Lemaitre made a second bold advance. Noting that an expanding universe must have been smaller, denser, and hotter in the past, he suggested that our universe may have originated as a small primeval fireball, expanding and cooling over billions of years. This, of course, is the theoretical origins of what today, following the slightly derisory example of Fred Hoyle in his radio lecture, which we talked about in the first episode. This is the origins of the Big Bang Theory. So at this stage, we're starting to see these really broad questions about the history and future of the universe starting to be answered. We have a theoretical framework of equations that can tell us different ways the universe might evolve. We have observations that can set some constraints on how this universe might work. We know that it's expanding, and we know that this implies, at least to Lemaitre and others, that it must have had a beginning. But there are plenty of other uncertainties and disputes around this interpretation still. For example, we can ask what the universe would have looked like in the past. We can ask about its geometry, whether in the absence of matter it would be curved like a sphere or flat. We can see if our observations of how the large-scale fabric of the universe is evolving, the Hubble redshift and the Hubble constant, match up to the matter that we can actually observe. And we can ask about the ultimate fate of the universe. 
We can ask whether the universe is heavier than the critical density or not, whether the universe will eventually crunch back in on itself, or expand indefinitely, and for all time. Later in our series, we will discuss some of the consequences of this theoretical framework for understanding the universe. We'll explore some toy solutions to these equations, which can describe how the universe would evolve in different circumstances. We'll discuss some of the issues that were still outstanding, which people hoped could be solved by additional observations, such as whether we are greater or less than that critical density. And we'll talk about how Lemaitre's theory of a Big Bang was perceived at the time, and therefore the genesis of the wars between those who advocated for a steady-state universe still, and those who believed that the universe had indeed begun with a Big Bang. But first, for our Patreon subscribers, we're going to take a bonus episode detour. We'll talk about why it is that the fundamental constants of the universe and the cosmology that was being discovered by Einstein and others actually allow for complex chemistry and allow for human life to exist. We'll talk about Dirac's strange numerological theory which connects some of these numbers together and attempts to explain how this can all work. And we'll discuss the paradox of fine-tuning that was starting to emerge in cosmology at this time. So if you want to listen to that, do subscribe via the Patreon page. Until next time though, everyone, thanks for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com. There you'll find the contact form, so if there are any comments, concerns, clarifications, questions you have, topics you'd like to hear us cover, uh, things that you think could do with some better explaining, please let me know. Um, I would like to help in whatever way I can, and I try and respond to those emails. And of course, if it's a good question and uh, the response is good, then I will put it in a future show. You can help out the show in many, many different ways. Of course, telling other people to listen is crucial. You can follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod. You can find us on Facebook. You can find the subreddit that we have under Physics Podcast. You can find the Facebook group that we have for all sorts of different science podcasts. That's the Science Podcast Facebook group. There's plenty of ways you can support the show. You can support us financially by subscribing to the aforementioned Patreon, where you'll get access to bonus exclusive episodes and episodes as soon as I've recorded them, uh, released early to you and faster than everyone else. And if you don't want to do that, you can, of course, uh, go for some one-off donations via the PayPal link, which is on the website as well, physicspodcast.com. But of course, the best way to support us always is to tell other people who might be interested to listen, whether that's in person, on your social media, reviewing the show, all that sort of thing. It all really helps. Until next time then, please do take care.